Nearly every, uh, nearly every people group, every nation, every tribe, every um, language, nearly every people group has some sort of utopian dream mixed into the fabric of their particular society. In 1990, around the 10th anniversary of the death of the former Beatle, John Lennon, his wife, Yoko Ono, suggested that in his memory, the whole world, meaning every radio station in every country, should sing together at a given time his famous song, Imagine. She suggested that this song is a good choice for an international anthem. She believed that this was the best way to do justice to the memory of Lenin and to let his legacy remain alive. She was right, because this song, more than any other that he wrote, most clearly articulated his own unique philosophy and even his secular humanism, his personal religion. So many television and radio stations around the world picked up on the idea, and that winter, they broadcast scenes of gathered crowds holding candles, gently swaying together, singing Lennon's terrible yet catchy tune. And up until this day, the song really has turned into a leftist utopian anthem. In the midst of the lockdowns of the pandemic, a bunch of celebrities desperate for attention, they put together an awful video of them singing this terrible song. I'm holding back, by the way. And in the face of the pandemic, it doesn't even make any sense to sing this particular song. I would argue that a better choice would have been Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones, but, or maybe the best choice of all time uh, the best choice would have been the greatest song of all time, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But of course, the world hates God and yet is looking to, to, to manufacture a utopia, a heaven on earth. And John Lennon, with his Gnostic Marxism, he calls his disciples to worship by singing, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, and John Lennon agreed with him, at least when it came to Christianity. And he called his disciples to go out into all the world and proclaim his false gospel. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. No, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Here's the problem. The Christianity that John Lennon rejected and even mocked offered the answers that he was looking for. 
Now, to be clear, he was looking for a Christless, godless utopia in this world, but the one who sits in the heavens and laughs, the one who sits at the Father's right hand, established the church and prayed in John chapter 17, quote, for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. John Lennon was so close, and yet he was so far away. He was an eternity away from the truth. I wonder sometimes what would have happened had the Spirit of God given him the eyes to see. I wonder what would have happened had he picked up the Bible and read, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 31. Turn there, let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let's just stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today, that you would feed us from your word, help us to remember that we genuinely are one in Christ, that you have done this, called us together as the body of Christ for your glory, for the praise of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we pick up where we left off here last week, 
Paul is now developing for these Corinthian Christians what it means that, as he wrote up in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now that phrase, manifestation of the Spirit, it simply means how the Holy Spirit is working outwardly or flowing from the life of believers. And so as Paul explains these things, he does so, obviously, by using the analogy of the human body. Now there are, I don't know, dozens of um, analogies in the New Testament, or really all through the Bible, for the people of God. These are given to to illustrate and to help us to understand the the various aspects of of the church and and life within this Christian community. So, for example, back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul briefly used, if, if you remember this, he used the images of a field and a building to explain that God was planting and watering and, and building his church into a holy temple. And if you remember, I mentioned last week that the book of Ephesians similarly calls the church the household of God and again, a holy temple. Well, now, here in um, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and Dealing, continuing to deal with their divisions and their factions, Paul draws on this um, universally familiar, universally easy to understand metaphor of the human body with its various limbs and organs and systems to illustrate the church of God and to address the Corinthians' narrow view of these, these spiritual gifts or, or as we maybe should call them, these grace gifts. Remember, Paul is writing about this topic specifically because they've written to him with questions. And it seems that they were especially um, questioning the miraculous sign gifts, particularly, and we'll get into this again in chapter 14, the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I want to reiterate, we've seen this over the past couple of weeks, that those sign gifts were given by God for a specific time in order to quickly spread the gospel, to establish the church, to validate or to prove the writings of the New Testament. But now that that we have the completed canon of Scripture, we've no need for the signs, we have the reality. And so as we read this section of 1 Corinthians, we should keep in mind that, that Paul actually, he doesn't rebuke or correct them really until chapter 14. That's significant because this is a church that needed a whole bunch of correction. In chapter 12, he's simply giving them some basic explanations of the the gifts of grace that come from the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 13, and we have a hint of this in the final verse of chapter 12, in chapter 13, he's going to explain to them the more excellent way, as he says, the Christian way. As we pick up here today, we can see that every Christian has been immersed in the one spirit into the body of Christ. Every member is vital. The church itself will not function properly when one or more members are seen as being less useful or less valuable than others. So let me say this here. There's a movement, and I think this can happen in any, any kind or any style of church, 
But there is a movement to focus on the young at the expense of the aged. And so churches will crank up the music. They'll water down the messages. They'll dim the lights. They'll do whatever it takes to attract young people while the older people pay for it in more ways than one, usually. I've recently heard of two different churches near us where older members sit out of the singing because the music is too loud for them. That is just wrong. And I think this passage speaks to issues just like this. I want to continue to be a church where older people and younger people continue to worship together, serve together, and love one another. Not every kid in here has believing grandparents. Or not every kid in here has believing grandparents that live close by. The opposite is true too. Not every grandparent in here has grandchildren or children who love the Lord. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. This is going to, the next couple of years, this is going to be my life. What are you laughing about? (laughs) Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Every member is vital, and the church will not function properly when some are seen as less useful or less valuable than others. And I also want to mention, I'm kind of going a little bit off the rails here. Not off the rails, that's a bad But I want to mention without saying any names that there are a bunch of the retired folks of this church who have fixed up the new playground, have completely reworked the flower beds, have helped to paint in the kids' classrooms, have worked on preparing the new kitchen, have done a bunch of other stuff that no one will ever see. And I really appreciate it. And I know that you do too, because we are one body. One body. Look at verses 12 to 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul introduces the analogy here, um, and as he does, he makes it abundantly clear that he's given us, really, what this is, is the theological basis for these grace gifts and, and how they are to be used within the church. This is what he means when he says, so it is with Christ. That's, that's shorthand for Christ's body, which is a phrase he's already used in this letter to refer to the church. As Christians, we are members of Christ's body. Yet sometimes, sometimes people will say that church membership isn't in the Bible. I'd like to point out that church membership is exactly what this is about. Not only does he use the word member repeatedly, but he's talking about people. He's talking about Christians and their relationships to one another. We, we know that he's not really talking about body parts, right? We, we know that this isn't an anatomy lesson in the middle of 
1 Corinthians or biology or whatever science, I'm not good at sciencey things. We know that he is saying that as Christians we are members of Christ's body. Paul even refers to baptism as he begins this. Now, there are a few reasons why people sometimes don't see membership in the Bible. One is because of submission. Either they're unwilling to submit to elders who are charged by God to keep watch over their souls, or they've had difficult experience with poor elders and pastors who have done damage to them and are reluctant to put themselves into that situation again. Another reason is that we have church options today that the New Testament Christians, the saints living in the time of the apostles, they just simply did not have. We have all kinds of churches within a reasonable distance from our homes, and so we can choose to hop from one to another whenever we want. But there's no, there's no church hopping in the New Testament. But I think a bigger reason for most of us here is because we've separated baptism from membership. In the New Testament, we see several times, particularly in the book of Acts, that when people believe and are baptized, it says there are added that day. Added to what? Added to the church. And so when we move churches, when you come here, one of the things that we need to do, the elders try to do, is to hear that you are really a believer. Have you been baptized into the body of Christ? In the New Testament, there's no separation between the, the local and the universal church. To be a member of one meant that you are necessarily a member of the other. Some will argue that this passage is about the universal church. But Christ's church doesn't exist merely sort of mystically, like out in the ether. The body of Christ exists in reality, in space and in time, just like a physical body. So this letter is written first and foremost to an actual church body who would have had no category for church hopping or, uh, or even, even Christianity existing outside of a specific group of believers. And this passage backs this up. This cannot make any sense without a specific and mutual commitment to a specific church. Paul defines the church here as those who have been all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. And when Paul speaks of baptism here, He's talking in terms of the relationship of the, the sacrament, the ordinance, to the unity of the body and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because we've been baptized into Christ, we've been given the seal of the Holy Spirit. We have been made one with him. Yet this, this unifying baptism that we speak of is supposed to unify the body of Christ as one it was the first source of division for the Corinthians. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, Paul says this. In, in speaking of their divisions, he says, What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. 
And so Paul reminds them that the means by which they were incorporated, brought into the church, was this baptism. Baptism is about incorporation and unity. And this connection between baptism and union with Christ, that's actually prominent in Paul's writing. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then one that is uh, one of my favorites, even though the word isn't used, we can see the, the imagery. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Each of the Corinthian Christians regardless of what they were before coming to faith in Christ, whether they were Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, they are baptized, they are immersed by the Holy Spirit into Christ's body, into the church. So, having established throughout this chapter that the only way to confess, right from the beginning, verse uh, 3, the only way to confess Jesus is Lord is by the Holy Spirit, that uh, additionally, that, uh, that the Spirit gives gifts as He wills for the common good, verse 7, and see that the body is one, Paul now moves from this point to stress the importance of diversity within the body. Diversity in the body, spiritual diversity. Verse, uh, pick it up in verse 15. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, the only significance um, of the specific body parts that Paul chooses to use as examples here are to point out the kind of the absurdity of esteeming one body part over another, or really one member over another. Those church members who were made to feel left out or as though they were lacking in the grace gifts department in Corinth. He is telling them that they are truly valuable members of the church, no matter what the so-called more prominent members might say. The fact is that feet and ears are important parts of any body. So the same is true, obviously, for Christ's body. To illustrate this, listen to what Paul writes kind of along the same lines in Romans chapter 12, speaking of the same topic. He says in Romans 12 verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, 
in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So these things are actually really straightforward, right? Yet one thing that has um, bothered me uh, for a long time is that even the most, even among the most um, faithful churches and pastors that, that we respect, there's a, there's a celebrity culture that goes against what Paul is saying here. I've been to my share of pastors' conferences over the years, and honestly, I'm kind of sick of it. Um, I've watched as the doors opened and, and pastors pastors run to to the front to get a seat close to whoever the speaker is some some another pastor some celebrity of one sort or another they they race like kids to get a front seat it's kind of gross i was at a conference once with my dad and we were in looking at a special exhibit we were the only ones in this specific room looking at this exhibit, except for some of the volunteers who were there. And we were asked to leave because a prominent and well-known pastor was about to come in and view the exhibit. Don't be a fanboy. It's okay to look up to preachers that are prominent. I have a bunch that I really look up to. But don't be a fanboy. The flip side of this, thinking of the church, is when people say, I'm not going to get involved at church because I don't know what I can offer. Me either. But verse 18 tells us that the Lord has assembled this body. And regardless of how we may feel, if you are a Christian, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you are just as important as anybody else. Why? Because God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. So you may not be able to paint the kitchen, or hang light fixtures, or work in the nursery, or provide a meal to someone, but I would remind you that probably the most important task that you can do is to pray. We need to be praying for one another. If you can do nothing else, at least pray. Pray for, pray for me. Pray for the pregnant moms. Pray for the kids in this church. Pray for our grandparents. Pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. Pray for one another. Pray for Diana. Pray for one another. Pray for the men who are working increased hours now that it's summertime. Our elders and deacons won't tell you this, but I think that right now we're all getting a little bit weary. There's a lot going on. Each of the men have an unusual amount of busyness right now. Um, and the Lord in his... Providence decided to throw a new church building at us in the midst of it. 
and we rejoice, but it's busy. And so pray. Pray for our holiness. Pray for the testimony toward those around us. Now, as a church, we have purposefully worked to kind of resist the temptation to be program-driven. Many churches have tons of various ministries designed to put people to work at serving and therefore uh, presumably using your spiritual gift for the church. But frankly, I can tell you that doesn't really work at making disciples. Not well. Early in my ministry, I spent a number of years doing all of those things. Lots and lots of programs. Every night of the week, something else happening. Often it was just busy work designed to make everyone feel like they were doing something, to feel like they were making a difference. And so I essentially flamed out of that whole system, and I want nothing to do with it anymore. Instead, I would say, give me the ordinary means of grace. Let us gather together and sing like you sang a couple of minutes ago. Let us gather together and pray and encourage each other from the word of God. Let us hear God's word read and proclaimed. There are times for programs. I don't really, um, I don't hate programs. We have some programs that happen once in a while. But I don't think they should be the norm for church life. Rather, I believe that the normal pattern of life for the church should be what we're going to get into in chapter 13. And if we're practicing those things, love for one another, then we will by necessity be exercising our grace gifts for the common good if we are loving one another. Paul continues by talking about the unity or unity in the Spirit. This reinforces this. In verse, look at verses 20 to 26. Verse 20, he says, As it is, you are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on, uh, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So on the one hand, in this section, Paul here is is rebuking those kind of the the elites of Corinth who thought very highly of themselves and apparently would boast of their own wisdom and knowledge or uh, whatever other spiritual gift they thought was most important. But these things do not define the body of Christ. The body of Christ is defined only as the single unified whole that God has intended, with all of its members working together as they should. I've already alluded to this um, as I spoke of Christian celebrity, but along those same lines, there's a danger in a church developing and growing around around a preacher's personality and his gifts. Now, Paul is going to throw a counter to this in the next section, but consider this for just a moment. I know that many of you have come to this church because we hold fast to the Word of God and preach the Bible in an undiluted way. I also know that that I'm the one doing the majority of the preaching. But one of my goals for this church 
is that we would not be focused on my personality, but rather on the unified whole of this body. In other words, that people would come for the preaching of God's word, sure, but that they would stay because of your love for one another. Because of your serving one another. Because of your hospitality. Because as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the body is building itself up in love with each member doing its part. So while I'm the, the primary preacher, there will be others in whom we help to uh, encourage and, and develop this gift. Other qualified and spirit-gifted men who will come into this pulpit and preach and teach God's word because this cannot be centered around me. So many of the well-known preachers of the past, um, preachers that we look up to, that we read, so many of them, when they're gone, their churches dwindle, if not outright dissolve. I would much rather not be well-known and have this church continue to grow and honor the Lord and thrive after I'm gone. Would you be praying to that end? I have no interest or illusion that somehow I'm going to be well-known. <laughs> I have no plans of ever writing a book or going on to the conference circuit. Um, this isn't about me. This is about this church. This is about honoring this body of Christ by encouraging you to remain steadfast and immovable in your faith and service to the King. This church is the way that it is because God has designed this body. And so we care for one another. We suffer together, as he says, and we rejoice together. And this brings us really to the proper function of the body of Christ. The proper function, pick it up in verse 27. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with uh, tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way. Verse 27 right there I think is great. Because Paul is looking the Corinthians dead in the eye and saying, I'm talking about you. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul repeats another sampling beginning in verse 28 and down of those grace gifts. And, and he's doing this in order to reinforce his, his point. And what's kind of, uh, kind of a funny bit of irony is that Paul who has just spent the last several verses telling us that the gifts are not about an order of importance. He now lists out several gifts by order of importance. But notice that especially at the beginning of this, here in verse 28, these are teaching gifts. He starts with the apostles and then the prophets, a specific group of people whose job it was to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, giving witness to the resurrection of the Messiah, to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, and to write down the scriptures. And then he mentions the teachers who have been given to teach those scriptures to the churches. 
In other words, these are essential for the founding and the edification of the church. But it's not about, it's not about the, the person possessing the gift. This is about the person faithfully doing as the Spirit has enabled him to do. So if you're a, if you're a member of this church, that means that you have, you have met with the elders. It means that we have determined, as, as best as we can tell, that you are a believer, that you have trusted in Christ for salvation. And it means that you desire to allow certain, certain under-shepherds to keep watch over your soul. It means that you have joined together in covenant with these specific people in the sight of God to proclaim Christ is Lord. It means that you seek to live obediently and have committed to furthering the ministry of this particular church for the glory of God alone. If you've not committed to church membership, I would encourage you to do so. But you also probably know, if you've been here for any length of time, we're not heavy-handed about this. This is probably as heavy-handed as we are usually. We know that there are reasons for some to be slow to join. We're patient because this is the body of Christ which was purchased with his own blood. Let's pray together. The body of Christ, Lord, the image that we think of when we say those words, as we say those words, as we come to the table, we think of Christ's own body hanging on the cross. We think of his atonement for our sin. We think of his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the Father. But Lord, when we think of the body of Christ, we also think of the church, the bride of Christ, God's field, God's building, a holy temple. Father, we think of the body being joined and held together. We think of the imagery of Ezekiel, of the dry bones, hearing the preaching of your word coming to life, beginning to rattle, beginning to stand up, beginning to come together with sinew and muscle starting to grow on it. And because of the gospel of Jesus Christ being, being breathed new life, being given the breath of life, that comes only through Christ. Father, we think of the Holy Spirit who is with us, who has been given as a sign and a guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, until we see you face to face, until we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, remind us today as we come to the table of, of Christ's sacrifice that we might be a part of his body. Of Christ's words, this is my body which is given for you. 
This is my blood, which is the new covenant. Father, remind us of the sacrifice of Christ that we might be the body of Christ. Father, we rejoice in these things to the praise and glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.